Hello Woodworms, I'm Ray Defterius, and this is the Hand Tool Book Review, the podcast for people who love woodwork and love reading about woodworking too. Do you find the arts and crafts movement intriguing? Were you aware that its origins were in 18th century England? Or perhaps you just want to put together a masterpiece reproduction Liebes sideboard? Well, today's book is by Nancy Hiller, It's probably less well known than her other publications, for the simple reason that it's not a lost art press publication. But it's a good book. Not a great book, but if you're interested in arts and craft, I feel like it's well worth having, and I'll get into some details about why in a few moments. Firstly, however, I'd like to say thanks to John Morrison for sending me the link on Ruskin's home in Secret Gardens on Amazon. This was a very thoughtful mail and I appreciate it because it alerted me to an interesting item on a topic that I was interested in. Thanks, John. Don Rice also sent in a suggestion that maybe I could compare by hand and eye and by hound and eye. I think it's a great idea. I'm going to reach out to the authors and see if they want to join me on a show where we can talk about two great books. Let's see how that goes. Speaking of interviews, I've got a very interesting interview coming up in the next few days. And I think it's relevant to woodworkers. It's not specifically book-related, but I thought it was important enough to get the lowdown on the current situation straight from the horse's mouth. So, sorry to be a tease, all will become clear shortly. And finally, as this is the first show after Christmas, thanks to everyone who sent me emails and wishes over the Christmas season, it's always nice to get some insights into what you're doing. It always feels a bit surreal here in the Southern Hemisphere to see all the snow pictures, when I was sitting in the sun, sweltering in the heat, and reading on the beach. But hey, that's the hemispheres for you. In the shop, I recently finished a tea tray group build. I really enjoyed this project, as I've never really done a a project with other people like this before. And I found it interesting to see all the different takes on what is basically the same design. In addition, because many of the participants were documenting their work, it was illuminating to see how different people tackle the same project. I guess this is one aspect of the wonder I still have with woodworking. For example, for the tray bottom, I was using tongue and groove construction. I chose to cut this with the plow plane. That meant that I had to repair the sides that were visible, and I was happy to do this because it was an end grain fix, which I thought was an easy fix. Other people, however, took the time to do it with chisels and to do a stopped groove, which gives you a better end result but frankly brings some accuracy issues if your chiseling isn't up to par, which creates a different issue on the mating pieces. Still, fascinating to see how many different ways there were to do the same thing. If you get the opportunity to do a group build, it has value way beyond the construction of the object in question. From design and assembly, all the way through to finishing, you'll learn a lot by following different people. Think about it like adding a few more arrows into your quiver. Also recently finished up the last chapter of John Ruskin's Unto This Last, and it's in that vein that I approach Nancy Hiller's book. In fact, her book is written using Ruskin's Pillars of Gothic as a backdrop to the projects. Ruskin's moral elements of Gothic are savageness, changefulness, naturalism, grotesqueness, rigidity, and redundance. These elements of Gothic were a counter-movement to the strict Catholicism of the time, and from architecture to wallpaper, by embracing these elements of Gothic, craftsmen of the time could kick back 
as it were, against previous design trends and embraced the culture of their Gothic forefathers. Ruskin saw these elements as being better than the wastefulness and exploitative nature of the society he was living in. Remember, this work was written at a time that was contemporary with the publication of Charles Dickens's books such as Hard Times and Oliver Twist, and they were a very real reflection of what contemporary life was like. The first 25 pages of the book answers the question, Is Arts and Crafts a Style? It speaks to Ruskin and Morris, two of the names synonymous with the underlying principles, as well as about the practical implementations of the movement. If you're curious about history, I think you'll love this section. If you're not that interested in history, I think you'll still really enjoy it, as it's wide-reaching in scope, and Nancy has resisted any temptation to put up a narrow selection of the common tropes here. Instead, she has really broadened the range of vision, and this is a very cool tour of the huge variety of elements, and it's packed into a remarkably short number of pages. I enjoyed this first section immensely, and I think this is where Nancy's strengths as an author really come through. To give you an idea of her writing, I'm going to read the complete afterword, as I found it to highlight her ease with moving between interesting anecdotes and deep thoughts and reflections, all with an effortless style. Afterword There was an arts and crafts movement in England too. The question was addressed in all sincerity to the leader of a tour at Crabtree Farms, a private home whose outbuildings house an impressive collection of arts and crafts furniture during my visit last May. How, I wondered, could anyone who is sufficiently interested in arts and crafts culture to seek out such a tour not be aware that 19th century England, with its notoriously ruthless factories, its international power and its wealth, supplied by a network of colonies, was the very oyster that gave rise to this cultural pearl. Wow, I thought, where do I even begin? Especially in view of the response I'd recently received from an editor to my pitch for an article related to English arts and crafts furniture. Quite honestly, arts and crafts has fallen by the wayside in terms of reader interest. Anything about Japanese joinery or state furniture, thanks to your Mr. Shaw's, is a winner at the moment. But arts and crafts is a harder sell. And there we have it. Arts and crafts reduced to a style, a matter of ephemeral interest. I get it. So much of what we deem worthy of our attention revolves around what we find beautiful. And what we find beautiful in the sense of beauty that inspires us, literally breathing into us a desire to act, even to be a certain way, is historically relative, dependent on fashion. But the arts and crafts movement concerned itself with so much more than fashion. It brought urgently needed attention to the human realities behind the objects that furnish our lives. While the pieces in this book may not float to aesthetic boat, to overlook arts and crafts on the basis is to underappreciate the part this movement played in articulating some foundational tenets that many of us consider golden. Among them, the idea that the things we make can express our values and influence our actions. That we have an ethical obligation to consider the quality of life experienced by those who produce the things we use in our daily lives. And that work, ideally, should not be a mere means to income, but should engage our capacities and afford us opportunities to improve ourselves. 
the philosophical dimensions of the arts and crafts movement are as relevant today as they were 150 years ago. Arts and crafts is not just a matter of passing style. Think today's sun-washed pale grey interior, minimally furnished, decorated with potted succulents, a blonde fur throw, arranged sensuously over a hand-wrought wooden stool. But, a trenchant critique of economic production and consumption that devalue the lives of many to maximise the financial gain for a few. This, then, is where Nancy is great. And my reason for not giving the book a great rather than a good is not from these sections at all. I wish in the 143 pages there'd been more of this Nancy. The only downside for me as a hand-tool reader is that the projects take a hybrid approach. This is not a major failing, and it would be only moderately difficult to adapt the plans to build them with only hand tools, or perhaps easy, depending on your level of experience. But for me, this book, like Hybrid Woodworking by Mark Spagnola, brings in too many tools that I'm not using. I'd contrast this to a Chris Wars book, where the detailed instructions will really help you to learn to build a project without having to resort to earplugs. I'll pause here for a bit and reflect that depending on how you feel about these types of instructions, the book will either be better or worse for you. Let's take an extract from page 53 and 54 so that you can get a feel for it. Here's some of the good. Be sure you trace the angle on the outside face of the leg, not the inside face where the splat rails will go. You will see that the mortises for the splat rails must be far shallower than those for the seat rail and stretchers. It's this kind of attention to detail that I really enjoyed and I think will be very helpful. Now let's turn the page and hit one of the more disappointing sections. I cut all the tenons on the table saw using a dado set and sliding miter fence set to 90 degrees with the fence set to guide the tenon lengths and then cut the top and bottom shoulders by hand. Miter the ends of the seat rail tenons where their mortises intersect to maximize their length. Okay, not bad. But if you didn't want to use a dado stack and a table saw, how do you go about doing it? That's the kind of concern that I had with the book. I guess that I was expecting a detailed and purest hand tool approach in an arts and crafts book. But perhaps that was naive of me. Regardless, the projects are really well documented. And I like the fact that the author takes the time to tell the story of how she found the pieces and why they were intriguing. There's a really good dive into the key architects or makers of the design, and you'll learn something about the personalities behind the pieces. And in some cases, this is not the little quaint country maker you might be expecting. Liebus was running a major operation with hundreds of workers producing his designs, and there are some interesting and relevant detours in the information presented. So for example, you'll learn about Voise's interactions with the movement in the UK to raise the standard of British design. And you learn how this design, while ostensibly a craft product, embraced machine tools for parts of the process. I think that this kind of detail, and all the anecdotes about the author's interactions on her road to recreation, make each one of the projects special. I guess in a way, the book takes what I'll call the popular woodworking format. No articles without projects. And this is what the bulk of the book comprises of. And yet the deep dive into the importance of the piece leaves you with the feeling that if you build one, you would be joining a golden thread of craftsmen that would connect you to our ancestors. There are three projects in the book. 
a Voisey two-heart chair, a Harris-Lieber sideboard, and a hayrake table based on a Gimson design. I can honestly say that I'm itching to build the chair after reading the book. Hey, I even started looking up traditional methods to make a rush seat. It's that kind of book. The actual plans and construction notes are excellent. For the chair, there are seven pages of diagrams showing all the relevant details. I haven't made it yet, but I cannot believe that anything has been omitted here. The plans to construct it are detailed and beautifully accompanied by many color photos showing the steps in the construction. And even in this section, there's some interesting tours into the craftspeople who supported Nancy. So on the chair, for example, you'll learn about Catherine Peters, the wicker woman, who makes seats and baskets. By the end of the book, I think like me, you'll be wishing for a bit more. Like more projects. And that's one of my few criticisms of the book. I would have loved more of the same. But it's a quality production, and it'll grace a coffee table for casual observers, or find a dedicated place next to the fireplace, or in your workshop. So in conclusion, English Arts and Crafts Furniture is 143 pages long, and is written by Nancy Hiller. It's published by Popular Woodworking Books, and you might have to search a bit to find a copy. I had to scrounge around to find a second-hand copy, and as at January 2021, it costs around $25 second-hand. If you buy new, it goes for $34. If you are interested in the history of the arts and crafts movement, and are tempted to build one of the projects in the book, it's good value for money. If you're not a fan of the arts and crafts movement, or the projects don't interest you, the book will be less appealing, although I don't think you'll regret getting a copy. I'm giving the book a 6 out of 10 in the category period furniture. That might seem harsh, but I think that people who are interested in this book will probably bump that rating up a point or two. I like the book, but I wanted to give it what I felt would be the best general rating of the book. This is definitely not Geoffrey Green's treatise on the 18th century, but by the same token, it's not a rehash of magazine articles. It's definitely not superficial. It has good coverage of an interesting period in history with a view from the other side of the Atlantic. I'm glad I bought it. I enjoyed reading it over the holidays. So that's it for now, Woodworms. And remember, go learn how to make a traditional rash seat and keep reading. If you have any comments or suggestions, Perhaps a favorite book you'd like to suggest or one you're considering buying that you'd like to be featured on a future episode, send me an email at handtoolbookreview at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can find me on Patreon. Your contributions will support the purchase of books for the library and future episodes. 